This morning, your bulletin tells you one thing, and what I'm going to preach is something totally different. I had planned on starting a series this morning on growing up in Christ, and we'll look to do that next week. We're going to take a look at, what is, next week, what does it mean to be born again? People use that phrase, and it's thrown around a lot, and, and what I want us to do with this series, I think it's going to be four messages long. And we're going to go through the different stages of a Christian's life. Just like as uh, physical human beings, we we have a birth and our childhood years and our our adult years and our senior years. We go through a process of growing up in Christ as well. And that starts with being born again. So that, that will be our lesson, Lord willing, next week. But yesterday I had a conversation with a lady that kind of laid something else on my heart this morning. And uh, when I went to the UPS store to open and to print the bulletin, I uh, first went to the counter to show the lady at the counter that the machine was still printing lines down the copies. This is like the third week in a row that it's done that. And uh, she asked me a question. She said, you know, she said, I'm a Christian. And she said, you've been coming in here now for years, and I've been talking with you now for years. And she said, you always carry carry yourself in a way that uh, you help people, you hold the door for them. If they've got something that's too much to carry, you help them carry a little of it. And she said, I'm just kind of concerned with the way our world's going on. She said, I'm a Christian too. And she said, with everything that's going on in Russia and the Ukraine and with stuff like COVID and with all this kind of things that are going on, uh, how should we act? What what should we do? How should a Christian respond to these different things that uh, that are happening uh, in our life? And when we think about it, over the last few years, would you agree with me at the very least they've been a bit full? Uh, you know, we've had COVID, we've had riots, we've had demonstrations, we've had all of these things have led the way in showing us that our world has lots of problems. And to make matters worse, our solution to these problems have left us angry, confused, and divided. And then this week, events have occurred that will, at the very least, Hit us in our hearts as we watch the news and as we see and listen to events happening in the Ukraine. And these same events will at the most be a spark that ignites a worldwide flame. And we don't know what's going to happen with all that, but as Americans, what should our response to these events entail? Can I tell you that that's above my pay grade? That's above your pay grade. What's the best thing we should do as Americans? I'm not sure. Uh, Every bone in me says we should live at peace with all men as much as possible. But at the same time, when you see things coming out like children's hospitals being bombed, it makes you want to pick up a stick and go to fighting yourself, you know. So what should our response be? As Americans, I'm not sure. But you know what? As Christians our response has much more clarity. Do you realize that we aren't the first society to face world-changing events? The 2020s aren't the first century 
that has ever brought world-changing events. We aren't even the first God-fearing society to face society-changing uh, events. This morning, we're going to hop in our DeLorean. That's a time machine for those who haven't seen uh, Back to the Future. And we're going to get in our DeLorean, and we're going to go back about 2,500 years to, the, to Israel. And we're going to see if we can't learn something that will help us face what we are facing as a world today. So turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 1 to 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of the time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah... Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. When we read in verse 1, Daniel gives us a very specific time for Babylon's first excursion into Judah. It's 605 B.C. It's the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign. In our history books, that would be 605 B.C. And it says that King Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city of Jerusalem. And what that means, back in those days, they didn't have air support. They couldn't make an amphibious landing. They didn't have Navy SEALs and all of that kind of thing. Quite often, the way a city would be taken over, especially a fortified city like Jerusalem with thick walls, Basically, what Nebuchadnezzar would do was take his army and surround the city. Where food couldn't come in, food couldn't come out. Supplies couldn't come in, supplies couldn't come out. Disease would break out, famine would break out, people would die of thirst, and there's nothing the people could do about it until eventually they would wave the white flag and the country would be taken over. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar does to Jerusalem here. And in verse 2, this introduces a main theme of the book of Daniel. It says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Uh, God 
themes of the book of Daniel is God is in control. God's sovereignty. What God wants to happen is going to happen. When we throw out that term sovereignty, that basically, that's a preacher word for the fact that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants. That's sovereignty. I believe that. I believe the Bible teaches that. And Scripture tells us that God, and he, later on in Daniel, Daniel tells us that God raises up kings, God raises up kingdoms for his purposes. God raised up Egypt to take the Israelites into slavery so that he could bring them out of slavery and make a great nation with Moses and Joshua. God raised up the nation of Assyria to take the country of Israel into captivity. And now God raises up Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to take Judah into captivity. It says that God delivered Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. One of the lessons we need to remember that when our world events seem like they're spiraling out of control, even with dictators, even with non-benevolent rulers, do we realize that God is still sovereign? God is still in control. God still rises, raises up kingdoms. God still takes down kingdoms. The only kingdom that's going to last forever is his kingdom, amen? All the rest of the kingdoms of the world, they've risen and they've fallen. Until Jesus comes back to set up his kingdoms, the kingdoms of the world are going to rise. The kingdoms of the world are going to fall. We need to remember that. We need to remember that even though the news and social media and even our friends and our neighbors, we act like everything is total chaos and everything is happening out of control. And very specifically in the Ukraine right now, I'm sure it is very chaotic. Uh, a, a missionary friend of mine, that an acquaintance of mine really, that lives in the Ukraine, he, he put out on Facebook, he had a picture of he, his, uh, himself, his wife, his children in the bathroom in their apartment in the Ukraine. And it was a video, you could hear the bomb sirens going off, and you could hear the bombs dropping in the distance. And the little girl was saying, Daddy, why is this happening? So it's very real, it's very chaotic, and if we're not careful, we think the world is about ready to fall off its axis. Can I give you some comfort this morning to understand that everything that's happening, God is in control. Our God is still on, in his holy temple, and he is still sitting on his throne. There is no entity, there is no body, there is no country that can take God off of his throne. We would do well to remember that. So, we understand Babylon comes into Jerusalem. Uh, but God is the one that's in control. And then in verse uh, 2, it says that he took some of those temple articles, he took some of those things to the house of his God. Uh, I've got a friend of mine that he's a Civil War reenactor. And uh, his name's Bud Corsi. He, he's a Civil War reenactor. And in the basement of his house, he has all kinds of Civil War memorabilia. He collects Civil War memorabilia. Well, in this day and age, 
when a king like Nebuchadnezzar would take over a country, he would go to the temple of the god of that country and take their temple stuff of that god and put the conquered nation's god's stuff in his temple. Basically saying, my god's bigger than your god's. People could go into his god room and look at his god collection and see how Nebuchadnezzar says, look how strong I am. I've taken my god, I've taken over all of these other countries. And we keep on reading and we find that the Babylonians in verses 3 and 4 have a practice of what I call, I invented a brand new word. It's called Babylonianizing. Uh, making their captive men, the young men, the brightest, the smartest, the most intelligent of these young men, they would take them back to Babylon and they would turn them into good little Babylonians. And they would assimilate them into Babylonian culture. Uh, and, and to try to make them be what uh, it took to be Babylonian. This first deportation, Nebuchadnezzar is very selective. He only takes the brightest. He only takes the best. Did you guys know, and you might or might not have known this. If not, I'm going to tell you something. If it's ever asked in trivial pursuit, you can say, I know that. My preacher told me that. Did you know? that it's ten times harder to get hired at Google than it is to get accepted into Harvard. Google, they hire one out of 130 applications. Harvard approves one out of 14 applications. To go to work for Google, it takes 37 days and several interviews to finally complete the application process and begin to work. And here is the Babylon's three-year plan. They had three years of college these young men would go through. First, they had to pass the interview process. And that interview process would be the physical test in verse uh, 4. It says they were young men, probably around 14, 15, 16. They were young men in without blemish. They were old enough to make the adjustment mentally and uh, psychologically, but yet they were young enough to be able to quickly adjust to the changing culture. And just the way that, that we put uh, that in something we can understand, uh, when computers first came out in the late 80s, early 90s, I was so intimidated, intimidated by a computer. A lot of folks in, in, in my generation and older that technology stuff intimidates us. And uh, we, I was so afraid I was going to hit a button and do something just cause everything to crash and the whole world to come crashing down. Uh, but now my daughter, by the time she was in second or third grade, she could do whatever she wanted to on a computer, and she never took a computer class. Today, when uh, you want your TV set up, <coughs> Who do you call? Your kids and your grandkids. Now, there, there's a wonderful thing called YouTube and Google that lots of times now you can punch in the kind of remote you've got and there'll be a Google video showing you how to do it. But what I'm pointing out is that young people adapt quicker, don't they? There's a reason why there's that saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. So the first 
group that was taken from Babylon to, or from Jerusalem to Babylon were the young, the, the brightest, the most intelligent, the smartest. They had to pass an IQ test. Verse 4 says they have to possess wisdom and knowledge and quick to understand. They had to have a high IQ. They had to pass a social test. These men were being prepared to serve in the king's court and in the king's presence, and so they had to be socially fluent. Have you ever met anyone that just didn't have a whole lot of social skills? Uh, and it seems like anymore they put them in the drive-thru window at the fast food restaurant. <laughs> You know, I, 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 honestly, I think sometimes the manager says, huh, let's get the least customer-friendly, social, active person. Let's put them in the drive-thru. That's not the way the Babylonians work. You had to be able to talk to people and be fluent and be able to pick up on the Babylonian language. And Babylon was not just a country that had the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. The Babylonian Empire was the largest country in the world at that time. It was a melting pot. The Babylonians took all of their captains from wherever they came from, and they both brought the best and the brightest to teach them how to be Babylonians. So these folks had that, that came into this training program, they had to be fairly quick to learn a new language, to learn a new culture, and to learn a new custom. Uh, it, it's interesting when... I can tell when new folks come to work uh, in the prison, uh, every morning when we you, you go through checkpoint where they pat you down and you go through the metal, metal detector, all that kind of thing. But when you go up the elevator or walk up the steps to get to what's called the control room, that's where you get the keys and your walkie-talkies, handcuffs, whatever you need to, to do your shift. To get through that, you have to go through what we call the trap gate. And when that trap gate opens, it makes a pretty loud noise. But it's nothing compared to the noise that that trap gate makes when it closes behind you. And I get a kick out of going through that trap <coughs> gate with first-day employees or first-time volunteers. It never fails. The first time that trap gate goes boom and crashes shut, they jump and look real big and their eyes are about this big around. And I know what's going through their mind is, what have I gotten myself into? I know that because I had that same thought. Now, I've been doing it for almost 10 years now, so I don't even think about it anymore. But we, we get acclimated to that culture. Well, these young folks could get acclimated pretty quickly. And another part of the program was to feed them well. Verse 5, the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve the king. In other words, let's feed them well, because with food like this, why would they want to rebel? With food like this, why would they want to go anyplace else? Then in Isaiah 39.7, conquering people would turn the men into eunuchs. Just to put this very delicately, they were castrated. The reason being, they wanted the focus of these eunuchs to be to serve the king. That's the only reason they were there, was to serve the king. They gave them Babylonian names. Notice in verse 
uh, seven, six and seven. Daniel is the Hebrew name. Belteshazzar is the Babylonian name. Daniel's Hebrew name, Daniel means God is my judge. Belteshazzar means Bel. That's one of the Babylonian gods protected his life. Hananiah in Hebrew means Yahweh is gracious. His Babylonian name is Shadrach, the command of Aku. Aku was another Babylonian deity. <laughs> Mishael means in Hebrew, who is what God is. Meshach means who is what Aku is. And then Azariah, Yahweh is my heifer, was given a Babylonian name, Abednego, the servant of Nebo, another Babylonian deity. Nebuchadnezzar wanted Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego to forget everything Jewish. Forget their name, forget their God, forget their temple, forget their culture. These young men, they are probably, as I've said, around 17 years old. Their world is turned totally upside down. Here they were, Jewish young men, hundreds of miles away from home. They're hundreds of miles away from their families. They're hundreds of miles away from the watchful eyes of Jewish elders and scribes and priests. If you put yourself in their position, I'm pretty sure their heads were spinning around faster than Linda Blair's in The Exorcist. Amen? A lot of things were turned topsy-turvy in their world. And not only were their heads spinning, their minds were spinning as well. Wouldn't it have been easy, if you put yourself in their position, wouldn't it have been easy to forget who they were and what they stood for? After all, who's watching? After all, that Nebuchadnezzar guy is pretty powerful. After all, we better get with the program or we might get kicked out of the program and that would mean death. This brings us to the second point. A lot of times our world gets turned upside down. Our world's turned upside down today. <clears throat> Secondly, when we are being tossed about and our minds are spinning, can I encourage you to keep the main thing, the main thing? Remember what's important. Remember to keep first things first. Read verse 8. Let's read it. But, when you see the word but, something's fixing to happen. But, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. It says that Daniel purposed in his heart. What that means is he made up his mind to do what was right. What Daniel, and we find out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what they decided, I'm sure, on the trip over to Babylon, they had a lot of time to think in that seven or 800 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. They made up their mind, we don't know what's going to happen to us. But whatever happens to us, we are not going to defile ourselves. 
Whatever happens to us, we're going to serve God. Whatever happens to us, the main thing is we continue to serve our God and give our God glory. And that's what Daniel does. This takes courage, does it not? When we read of things that are coming out of Ukraine, and I read a quote from their president that said, I don't need a safe passage out of my country. He said, what I need are weapons so I can fight with my countrymen. He says, if I die, I die. Y'all, to me, that's leadership. In a very troubled time, he made up his mind that he was going to defend his country. He made the statement before Putin invaded that Putin may very well invade, but he said, he said, I promise you this, the Russians won't be seeing our backs, they'll be seeing our faces. They made their mind up before the situation ever got to where it is. Here's what we are going to do. Y'all, I don't know what this world's going to be like five minutes from now, much less five years from now. But this one thing I do know, I purposed in my heart that I'm going to follow God. And I'm going to keep preaching about my Jesus. And I'm going to keep telling everybody Jesus loves them because he does. Will you come with me? Let's purpose in our heart. When our world is tossed about and we don't know what else to do, we don't know what else to think, we don't know what else to say, what about saying, yes, Jesus loves me. And he loves you too. Why not be willing to say, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but one of these days, I'll fly away. Understand the main thing. When we leave this life, and guess what? We will. Unless the Lord comes back first and takes us to meet Him, we're going to die. And when we do, when the roll's called up yonder, are you going to be there? Am I going to be there? Because when we get there, it won't matter how much money we had. It won't matter what kind of car we drive. I'm getting ready to get a little 2003 Honda Civic because gas prices are going crazy and I've got a 50 mile drive one way. Y'all, that Honda Civic is in, it, it's, it's ugly. Uh, it's almost 20 years old, a 20 year old vehicle. It, it's, it's, it's been rode hard and put up wet as a fellow used to say about his, uh, about his uh, horse. But my son-in-law looked at it. He's a mechanic. He said, this car just has a little bit of small uh, things wrong with it. He said, the bones of this car is a good car. You know what? I don't care what it looks like. I know one thing when gas is $5 a gallon, which it may well get to before it's over, I'll be much happier driving that old ugly Honda Civic that gets 30 miles a gallon, 40 miles a gallon, than I will that nice Nissan Frontier. Now, I love my Frontier. 
I love my truck. It's got seated, he, uh, heated seats. I've never had a vehicle that had heated seats. You turn that little button on and about five minutes down the road, you're all nice and toasty and warm. And it's got a little thing in the rearview mirror where when lights are bright and they shine in the rearview mirror, it automatically dims them. It's got all the bells and whistles. It also gets 15 miles to the gallon. So I said to myself, I'd rather give up my heated seats and save a little bit of money. Y'all, I don't know where they're, and I, I say that to make you guys laugh, but y'all, I don't know where our world's headed, but I do know this. Wherever it's headed, I'm going there with Jesus, amen? amen? And that's the main thing, and that's where we have to keep our focus. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. Now, should we stand up? Should we stand up and exercise our rights? Yes. Should we vote for the person that we think will do the best job? Yes. But bottom line, it doesn't matter who's in the White House because God's still on His throne. Amen. Amen. Now, y'all go home this afternoon, afternoon and read the rest of the story. It's a pretty cool story. The rest of chapter one, but I want to jump ahead to chapter six. Flip over to Daniel 6 for a minute. We're going to get back in our DeLorean and we're going to go forward about 70 years. In Daniel 1, they, uh, Daniel is about 15, 16, 17 years old. In Daniel 6, Daniel is 85, 87, 90 years old. In Daniel 1, Nebuchadnezzar is the world leader. Babylon is the country that is in the empire that is the world-dominant empire. Seventy years later in Daniel 6, the Medes and the Persians, co-ruled by Cyrus and Darius, they are the kings and they are the leaders. So 70 years have gone by. We see Daniel faithful. In chapter 1, he wasn't going to eat. The king's food. He purposed, he made up his mind not to defile himself. Let's check in on Daniel 75 years later. 70 years later. We find that Darius sets up his kingdom. Daniel is still serving in the kingdom. Daniel, even though he keeps God first and even though he trusts God and even though he worships God, and even though he worships God and won't worship those gods and things that take him into God's opposition, Daniel still finds favor and he serves his kingdom. He served the, the court in Babylon. He serves the court in Persia. And Daniel, it says, verse 3, even at 75 years old, he, or, or 85 years old, rather, he distinguishes himself above all these others. To the point that Darius, the king of Persia, the king of Media, was thinking seriously about making Daniel prime minister. That's the kind of reputation that Daniel had. Well, we talked about it in our Sunday school class. When somebody gets promoted, quite often others get left behind, right? And these guys that are left behind start getting jealous. And they, said, they say to themselves, we can't have this Daniel being over all of us. We need to do something. And if you keep on reading, 
It says in verse 4, they said that they knew that they couldn't find any fault in the way that Daniel did his job. In other words, we can't look through his files. We can't look through his paperwork and do an audit and find anything wrong. Daniel has integrity. Daniel does things the right way. If we're going to find a charge against him, verse 5, it's going to have to be concerning the law of his God. So all of these guys get together, verses 6 and 7, 8 and 9, and they come together as a group of little tattletales. Uh, remember in our Sunday school, we talked about how the tattletales told on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Well, these same Eddie Haspel-type tattletales come to tell King Darius, y'all remember Eddie Haspel, right? Uh, Mrs. Cleaver, that's a beautiful dress you have on today. And as soon as Mrs. Cleaver got out of sight, he'd tell Beaver, get out of the way, squirt. And that's the way Eddie Haskell was. That's the way these guys were. They say, oh, Darius King, live forever. We think you ought to make a law. And we think that the law you ought to make should say, for the next 30 days, nobody in the kingdom can bow down and worship anybody or pray to anybody except you. We think that's a great idea. In fact, anybody that gets caught doing this, they ought to be thrown into the lion's den. And King Darius says, that is a good idea. I think that's what we ought to do. And so the law is signed. Notice Daniel. This We see in Daniel 1.8, it said Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. So now the law says you can't pray to anybody except King Darius. Look at verse 10 of Daniel 6. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before God. And watch this next phrase as was his custom since his early days. When Daniel was 17 years old, we're going to use that age, he was a young man. You remember when you were young? You were brave and brash and you had all the answers. Somebody put on Facebook the other day, quit, tell your teenage child or grandchild to, make, to accomplish something while they still know everything. Uh, there, there's some truth to some of that. That's what Daniel says. I'm not going to defile myself. 85-year-old Daniel says, I'm not going to defile myself. And you know what Daniel did? Dan, there's a couple of phrases here that jump out to me. It says that Daniel finds out he's not supposed to pray to anybody else except Darius. Or he's going to be thrown into a den of lions. Daniel went back to his room. He didn't go to a cave. He didn't hide out. He didn't go to a neighbor's house. He went to his room. With the window open. And he kept on praying. Just like he always did. Of course y'all know that rest of this story, he gets pitched in the lion's den. God delivers him from the lion's den. But here's what I want us to see this morning. Serving God isn't just an event. 
Sometimes when we get saved, and we're going to look at this next week, Lord willing, in the lesson of what it means to be born again, sometimes we think a decision to serve the Lord is just that. It's a one-time decision. I've done that check, and I've got it off my list of things to do. Can I suggest to you this morning that serving God is not a one-time event. It is a lifetime. The army used to, I think it's the army, used to have a slogan that says, join the army. It's not a job, it's an adventure. Can I tell you, Jesus ought to have that slogan? Trust Jesus as your Savior. It's not just a decision. It's a lifetime of adventure because it is. Seventy years later, Daniel's still serving God. When Daniel was 17, he made up his mind. He was going to serve God no matter what, no matter who sat on the throne, no matter who passed the law, he was going to serve God. He made up his mind before he got there. That's what he was going to do. And he set up habits. Habits of three-time prayer. Three times a day prayer. Habits of serving God. Habits of worshiping God. He wasn't at the temple anymore. He wasn't around the priests anymore. He was seven or 800 miles away from all of that. He was still serving God. Seventy years later, as an 85-year-old man, their old Daniel is still serving God. You know, I don't know what the future holds for me. I don't know what it holds for you. But if the Lord allows me to be 85 years old, or 90 the way Daniel was, it is my hope, it is my prayer, it is my aim that I will still be found serving my God to the best I may. I may have to have, when I get that age, the way my mind is now, between now and 90 years old, I may have to have somebody remind me to put my clothes on before I go outside the room. Y'all are laughing because you can relate, right? But I pray to God. When I'm 90 years old, 80 years old, 85 years old, they say, Brother Andy's still serving God. Make up our mind, y'all. That's what we've got to do. I don't know where this world's headed. I don't know what the next pandemic is. But I got on the internet the other day. You know how you get on your homepage. Yahoo is my homepage. And it said on the Yahoo homepage, Bill Gates says that COVID is almost well over, but another pandemic is on the way. So here's my question. Number one, what does Bill Gates know about COVID? And then what does he know about pandemic? Why is it we trust people that don't know a thing about world events to shape our world? That's, that's a whole other deal. I don't know what's coming next. Neither does Bill Gates. Amen? But I'll tell you this. It may seem chaotic. It may seem confusing. Scripture tells us when I read God's word, as we roll into end times, it's going to be chaotic. And it's going to get worse. But God is not, God hasn't lost control. God is totally in control. God is winding everything down to get to the world to get the world into a place where Jesus is coming back to make it all right. 
So as we wrap this up this morning, we're going to do a little different this morning. No matter how our earthly focuses and allegiances might change, as Christians, our ultimate focus and allegiance is on Jesus Christ and his kingdom priorities. That would be my sermon in a sentence today. I'm going to repeat that. No matter how our earthly focuses and allegiances might change, as Christians, our ultimate focus and allegiance is on Jesus Christ and his kingdom priorities. And what we've learned this morning, there's two ways to do that. Number one, to purpose in our heart to put Jesus first. No matter what happens, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how sick we may get, no matter how hungry we may get, no matter how poor we may get, purpose in our heart, we're going to trust Jesus. Number two, Let's start building lifetime habits. And can I tell you this morning that it's never too late for a life change? It's never too late to start over. You say, well, I don't have good prayer habits. I don't have good uh, scripture reading habits. I don't have good church attendance habits. I, I don't have... The best time to start building new habits is yesterday. But since we don't have control over yesterday... The next best time is today. So whatever you need to do, pray to the Lord to give you wisdom to know what you need to do to start walking with him. You need to trust Jesus as your Savior. That's very simple. Admit you're a sinner. Believe Jesus' finished work on the cross is enough to save you because it is. Put your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Please save me. And he'll save you. And then make your mind up to live the rest of your life. Now, Satan's going to try to go, boy, you sure did do a lot of bad things. Once you trust Jesus as your Savior, the past is behind you. You're a different person. You're born again. We're going to talk about that next week. See, that's my plug for next week's sermon. Come back. We're going to talk about that next week. Because you're new, you're different. It's time to start living for Jesus. Let's bow.